Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome, marketers, advertisers, and those who love them, to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here with my guest, Nancy Zwiers. Nancy Zwiers was previously the Chief Marketing Officer of Spinmancer, the makers of Paw Patrol. Don't laugh, that's $8 billion in sales since it's launched, and Hatchimals, which created a craze during its 2016 launch. Previously, she was the SVP of Worldwide Marketing on Barbie and the general manager of the girls' division. She also had her own company called Phonosophy, which I always have trouble saying, which specialized <laughs> in youth and play. In short, Nancy probably knows toys and fun better than any adult you know. Welcome, Nancy. Oh, good to be here, Mike. So today's topic, why is marketing innovation so freaking hard? And here's the, the setup. The chief marketing officer seat is by far the fastest churning seat in the executive like level. And one of the main challenges is the need to innovate in an environment where everyone has an opinion. Financial pressures are enormous. And there's often at least one peer and often more that thinks that innovation is not going to work. I want our listeners to imagine what that's like in toys, where the bets are bigger and more judgment-oriented than most industries. Nancy, tell us how innovation works in the toy business and start by dimensionalizing the industry a little bit. Okay. Well, it's a big business, about $100 billion worldwide every year. That's a lot of fun, isn't it? $100 oh, billion yeah, in lots fun. Of play. And it's very high stakes because... Um, about two-thirds of the business happen in the fourth quarter of each year, and you don't have a lot of time to optimize once you launch because there's no pushing Christmas back to January or February. So you're really kind of laying down your bet, and you got to live with it. Uh, to make uh, things even more challenging, most products, almost all products in, in the advertised toy business have a lifespan of six to 12 months. So you're doing this over and over again. And um, besides the fact that you're launching new products, you don't really know what products your competition is launching. So it, it's full of uh, unknowns and you have to really um, start learning how to trust your gut. So, so this is a series of bets that you, you know, as the CMO or the head of these really cool divisions, you're going to make all these bets like in sequence. And you're going to have to have bets lined up, I guess, for a couple of years, right? That is a huge amount of judgment and a huge amount of betting, if you will. How do you keep those ideas and then track how they're doing and then manage the company to get them out all at once? Like what's, what's the secret here in managing that pipeline? Well, pipeline is the right word, Mike. Um, we create, uh, most big companies create a three-year pipeline, and we create a strategic framework for the uh, out 
you know, the, the next three years out. And you start by creating what we call um, a strategic objective for a product. And then we start developing concepts to um, that meet that strategic objective. Uh, the biggest companies, the most sophisticated, do some concept testing. But again, you can't really test against the competition. So you're just trying to weed out um, the less optimal concepts. I would say that um, if we could do even more research with consumers, we would minimize some of the judgment, but there isn't enough money and there isn't enough time to do that. So the best people who are most successful in this industry really practice pattern recognition, kind of not unlike a chess player does. And you start recognizing patterns and then that starts informing your gut and then the more times you're right, the more you trust your gut. And so it becomes this virtuous circle of being able, able to advocate for your ideas in the absence of objective information that everybody can agree on. Hey, Nancy, give us an example of your pattern recognition in your career. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about one that worked. And then later we'll talk about when, when your gut took took you the wrong way, but give us a good example of pattern recognition and, and, and then how that produced a product. Okay. Well, I had the opportunity of working on Barbie. We sold about 125 million units every year. 125 and, million Barbies a year. Yes. 125 wow. million a year. And um, with that kind of volume, you have the benefit of being able to pick up on patterns. So we learned that young girls, like ages three to six, were different than older girls, ages, say, you know, seven to eight, nine. And so we started segmenting the business that way. We noticed that, you know, there are core play patterns. Girls like to play, you know, with hair. They like to play with fashion. We noticed that there were... Um, themes that were proven year in and year out to be the big themes. Like we always had a bathing suit Barbie. We always had a glamor Barbie. Pop star was a great uh, theme. So we leaned into the things that worked. And amazingly, um, children play around the world the same. So we pretty much figured out that play is a biological drive. It, it, you know, transcends time, geography, culture. And so once you start learning what those play drives, um, how they manifest, you can really uh, stay true to that, but then find different ways to deliver on those core play patterns. It's really fascinating. So here you have a ton of data because you have Barbie over the course of, you know, years and years and years, and you have so many data points that you can, you can make it work. Tell us about a time where you had to bet on your gut where you didn't have so much uh, data. Huh? So, um, what, one thing I will say is that um, when I got on Barbie, it was represented about 20, uh, I'm sorry, 80% of Mattel's profits. So it really covered all the other businesses and it was high stakes for Mattel. And um, so there was a lot of higher ups involved and I wanted a little bit more independence. So I um, picked a segment of Barbie called Collector Barbie, where we sold these dolls to adults who loved Barbie, were passionate about Barbie. And at the time that um, I identified it as kind of my playground to kind of have a little bit of unfettered decision making, it was six million 
uh, dollars, which was less than 1% of the total revenue of the brand. And so we were in uncharted territory for figuring out how to uh, grow that business. And um, what I, I what I realized and the way I framed the opportunity is that there were 28 million women between the ages of blank and blank that grew up playing with Barbie. And so we had a chance to develop a casual collector segment. That was just a gut feel that there would be a market there. But lo and behold, we started uh, instead of selling $500 dolls and $1,000 dolls, um, targeted to the real, you know, avid collectors. Yeah. We started selling um, $100 dolls and $150 dolls. And the the business skyrocketed. We grew it from like $6 million to $175 million within three years. And not to say, not to speak <laughs> of, 70% operating profit. Whoa, that wow. made a difference. That's some serious money. Hey, so so I, for our listeners, Nancy and I started a PNG longer ago than we're going to share. But uh, Nancy, I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners to draw a, a parallel, be, not a parallel, but a difference between how consumer testing and consumer research worked at at a company like PNG or, or or like a Pepsi or Lever or whatever you want to say, and then how it works at uh, at toys, and then we'll talk about. How hard is it to get it through the system? Because it's hard to get it through the system in both places. But give us a give us like take that and run it anywhere you want with it. Okay, okay. Well, uh, to just take a quick tangent, um, PNG cared about innovation. They asked me in my interview, you know, give us an example of when you innovated. I was a college student at the time, and so. My example was, oh, I threw this red party and everyone came dressed up in red and everyone had red cups and we had red lights. And frankly, I'm kind of surprised I got the job with that as my example. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I will I will just move us along from right here. So so you get that and then you're at P&G. So you get like, at Proctor, you can you have time to test. Like, and you're going to test it until it's right. In toys, you obviously don't have time to test. T tell us, like, go into our, our listeners, if they wanted to go into toys, how would they How would they innovate or what lessons from toys innovation can you bring to our listeners out here? You know, you well, mentioned your gut and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, so let people in on this. Okay, so in terms of research, one interesting thing is that almost all of our research dollars is spent on measuring our success or our ability and our success in creating desire. Almost none of the research is done um, to uh, prove out the play value of the product because all the samples are handmade. Hey, just one, just one question. What does desire look like in research? Children choose it. They can't tell you uh, why they like it. You can't ask okay. kids questions like, why do you like it? Oh, because it's fun. Why is it fun? Oh, because it looks fun. So you have to base it on what they choose. Wait, so you're saying you can't give them a 10-point scale and say on a scale from 1 to 10 with this, you can't do that. You just have to put them in a room and let them pick. Yeah, either you know, put them in a room or sometimes it's, uh, you know, um, sometimes it, it became online. But we put stuff in the table in like a, uh, in a focus group. We put uh, some early concepts, prototypes on the table, and then we'd see what kids would reach for. 
And whatever they reached for, it was like kind of a, uh, a guide to what they were um, most intrigued by. So you really have to um, always test versus uh, a relevant competitive set and then measure what they go for. You can't ever test something by itself. Any good story on this where you had an aha moment when you're testing with these kids that you want to share with our listeners? Because you did, I always well, say it wrong, Hatchimals and some other stuff. So it's it's fabulously interesting work that you did. The, the, the story that comes to my mind is that we used to say with little girls, there's no such thing as too much sparkle. And I remember that we had these concept boards where we were trying to get some feedback on different approaches to something. And the concept boards had glitter. And the glitter on the concept boards fell down into the carpet. And when we um, had the moderator leave the room, the girls got down on their hands and knees and were picking glitter out of the carpet grain by grain. So that was pretty funny. Um, wow. I, would, I would say that... Um, there were times when research told us, no, girls don't like this. Barbie walking, for example. Um, we created a walking Barbie. And top management said, you know what? I don't care what the research says. We're going to do talking or walking Barbie. And in that, case, in that particular case, it, um, it didn't really work very well. The product didn't work very well. But then the flip side was true, too. There were times when girls said they didn't like it, but then when it got out in the marketplace and they saw that um, there was some, you know, older girls that liked it, they would follow uh, suit. And so we couldn't even really 100% trust the research. The research was guided our decision, but we, uh, we couldn't just take it to the bank each time. Let's move this along to the, uh, one of the things about innovation is everyone has an opinion, but there's not that many people that actually are accountable for it. You as the CMO are almost always going to be accountable for a lot of it and also for the results. Tell us about how, like best practices you have for getting innovation through a company, especially where there's so much judgment involved in something like toys. Okay, so um, let me just give an example of when we we stood firm on our belief in something. We were um, about to launch Hatchimals. It was a huge launch for the company, and we developed a unique uh, approach to the advertising. Uh, we included, uh, you know, kind of in, in a case of lateral thinking, I had worked on Cabbage Patch. And I remember when Cabbage Patch was huge in the 80s, uh, studying the research, um, they had included the whole family in the adoption, you know, experience of Cabbage Patch. So the hatching of Hatchimals took about, you know, 30, 40 minutes when we first launched. And so we included mom and dad in the commercial. Normally, it's just kids. And uh, an industry heavyweight saw the commercial and was talking to the co-CEO of the company. And he said, that commercial is a disaster. And uh, about 
a month before launch, they told us to reshoot the commercial because it was mm. a disaster. And we said, no, we believe in it. And we stood firm. We gathered up some allies in the form of uh, the head of sales and the head of research. And we said, you know, nope, we're going to stick with it. And it ended up being phenomenal. So that's a, just an example of how sometimes you have to gird your loins and stick to your guns and push through against the objections of people who have more position power than you do. So uh, I, one thing, Hatchimals, tell everybody what it is, because it's a 30 minute hatch. On a, on a, I think our listeners, some of them may not have purchased the Hatchimals or uh, however you say it. So please fill, okay. fill that in. And then also the inclusion of the adults in the advertising why was that such a big deal? So, so tell us a little more about this story. Okay, so um, Hatchimals um, was an amazingly innovative product. It was a big egg and the child, when you take it out of the package, it automatically activated a mechanism that took about 30 minutes to unfold. And the child would uh, manipulate the egg and, and the gradual process would unfurl in the case of like eyes would light up. You could see it through the, through the shell and then you'd hear some little chirping sounds through the shell. And eventually you see that, uh, that first crack and then pretty soon more cracks and you see the little beak coming out and the egg literally hatches magically through your, um, your love and care. Your love makes it hatch. It was so innovative that uh, the trade, uh, the retail trade, um, wanted huge launch quantities and we couldn't put it on the shelf when normally holiday products hit the shelf in August. The earliest we could do it was in um, October. So we created in an unusual move, um, borrowing from my experience in um, computer games, video games, we um we created a street date in October. Prior to that, we had a teaser campaign where we showed the first part of the hatch and then the second part of the hatch. And then on hatch day, we un unveiled a 60 second commercial, which is unheard of these days. And we showed the complete hatching with lots of kids and mom and dad. We had dad filming with the with his phone to capture it on uh, camera to, you know, kind of model sharing on social media. And part of the reason why we um, chose to include the family is that the child loves to be the center of attention in their family. And this is a case where the little girl or in the or boy who's receiving the, the product, it was their product, they got to be the center of attention of the entire family. And there's not that many toys that really allow for that. So we decided to capitalize on that um, consumer insight. Um, we also concentrated so many of our dollars in October. Normally, you spread out your dollars yeah. between November and December. And we put so much money into those first two weeks of October, we literally didn't have to advertise for the balance of the holiday season. The product just flew off the shelves. People were lining up around stores at 4 a.m. to get their Hatchimals for uh, for Christmas for their children or, or Hanukkah. And it was just like an incredible um, 
experience that helped create a three-year period where Spinmaster, uh, the company, really had uh, record uh, revenue and record profits um, because we kept being able to milk that incredible um, vitality that we created in October of 16. Nice. That, that is a great story. So so I'm going to go out on a limb and say you are an expert in innovation and getting innovation through companies. Uh, two, two kind of questions at once. How do you pick, how do you know a company is really committed to innovation? Because every company says they are, but a whole bunch of them aren't really. They will actually round off every innovation edge and produce the dullest possible stuff. So how do you know a company's committed to it? And then two, even in an innovative company, a lot of people don't like the innovation. How do you manage it? So how do you pick the company and then how do you manage it? Okay, so um, when I joined Spinmaster, I was super excited because it is widely known as uh, one of the most innovative, if not the most innovative companies in the industry. And um, they had a record, a track record of making big bets. So you can kind of tell if, if a company is really sticking their neck out and making big bets that they prize innovation. Um, within the management structure, do they punish failure? Do they celebrate failure? At Spinmaster, people would, you know, literally hold up failures and celebrate them because at least someone tried to do something unique, even if it didn't work. Um, you know, uh, McKinsey's, uh, McKinsey's study shows that the biggest obstacle to um, innovation is fear, fear of a negative impact on your career if it fails and fear of the uncertainty. And so uh, in addition to you kind of developing your own you know, sense of courage and trusting your gut, you also look for uh, management that is willing to create space for innovation, willing to uh, you know, uh, fund innovation. Uh, let's face it, giving birth is messy and painful. And so, so is innovation. It's not a clear, uh, clear cut road. So one of the things you want to look for is companies really celebrating um, innovation, celebrating uh, failed innovation and not um, punishing people for trying new things that didn't work. So when you're interviewing, is there a single question you ask that the answer to that innovation question is binary for you? Like I won't take the job you know, if the I answer think one wrong. thing, one way that um, the the analyst evaluate innovation is what percentage of your sales come from products that have been launched in the last three years. Yeah. And so that's a real, you know, objective measure. But asking them what's the late, what's the last big innovation you launched, um, whether it was a marketing program, whether it was a product, and and uh, how did that how did that unfold? And really, you know, kind of assess uh, the um, the impact. I, I do. I don't want to leave this conversation without asking you about how you, uh, in your CMO role at Best Buy, a, a retailer known for appliances, how you really got them to start thinking about the music industry and which created a whole halo around Best Buy. I'd love for you to, your listeners to hear this story because it's amazing. Well, thank you. Well, one, I had a great group of peers and, one of those peers was a head merchant. 
And he totally supported the long-term vision of building the business and actually into a consumer function too. The, the guy that ran music was and movies was really into it. And he and I hatched a bunch of ideas that the company supported, including, you know, we had a deal with the Rolling Stones and everybody, and we had a trading desk. And the, at the time, the company what did celebrate failures, took risks, and it was also, it was not really an appliance company, it was a technology company, but it did, it, it had training in the business. As technology came out, you had to take it or not. You couldn't say, you know, this Pentium chip, we're gonna watch it for a year, or, 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 or all the digital stuff, digital kit, we're going to watch it for a year. You took it or you didn't. And the company applied that to everything at the time. And so that's how we got uh, Reward Zone, the loyalty program going, the, the trading desk where we traded marketing for exclusive music content and everything else. But without the peers and without the company culture and without also the, at the time, the Best, best Buy was really into take, take the, don't don't be crazy, but take risks when you can, and so so that that's how it worked. Uh, a lot of companies say they want to take that risk, but as soon as they see that potential bill, not even the real bill, the potential bill, they won't take it. And the other thing I will say that I uh, about innovation that is at least super important to me, and I will ask it in the interview question: If you have to have a perfect forecast for an innovation. Like if the CFO and everybody are pounding you for exactly what you're going to sell for an innovation, it is not an innovation. It is a known entity. And I, I will tear apart how the company does that because if they are forecasting down to, I mean, wait, if you have to spend like two days on the forecast and get it right for something that is a true innovation, it is going to be killed by the company if it doesn't do exactly what the forecast says, even though you're making that entire plan up. And uh, at the Best Buy did not make us do that. They thought, are you close or not? And then we did it. So thank you. Thank you for that question. I, I know I, I could, we could keep talking a long time and, and maybe we'll, we will do another show. I, I would love to take this back to your funniest or favorite story that you want to share that you haven't shared so far. Well, actually, my uh Funniest story um, was really not about me. It was about oh, over 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to hear the inventor of post-it notes speak. And he talked about that invention. And he, um, I remember him saying, you know, when he was talking, no one, no one believed in this, you know, faulty adhesive product. It didn't even stick properly. It was like a bust. And then he started noticing um, secretaries, assistants using it. And so then he talked to manufacturing. They go, you don't understand. This is really hard to manufacture. And he goes, great. That means that it'll be really hard to copy. And then he finished his talk by saying, before you're successful, people will call you stubborn. But after you're successful, people will call you tenacious. And nice. I just love that story. And you don't, you don't want to tell any Proctor stories about innovation, do you? I think there's one. Uh, well, I, I will say um, one, of the, one of the things that kind of put me over the top to make a decision that someone with my, you know, desire for creativity would not necessarily love staying at Proctor for the long term, even though I prize my training that I got there is that we were on top job, we were transitioning to uh, a plastic tooled cap 
from a two-tone metal cap that we had been using for years. The two-tone metal cap was part orange and part green, and the plastic cap had to be one of those colors, green or orange. And we did months and months of testing to determine what it was going to be. And we um, we just we got word or we got insight that it was the orange cap was the way to go. And then I had to go up the line and get everyone on board with the orange cap. And then we finally got to the divisional manager who had to give the final blessing. And he looked at it and he said, you know, I think we should go with the green cap. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that was like uh, not really even an innovation, but it speaks to um, this idea of risk aversion and, um, you know, dancing on the head of a pin instead of making big bets. And, you know, having been in the toy industry for over 30 years, I have to say, for me, it was a great fit because it was like constantly swinging for the fences. And that's a lot of fun when you get to do that and when you're right more often than not. Yes. Thank you for that story, because it also emphasizes a point about innovation, which if innovation is a democracy where everyone votes and every level votes, you will not really get any innovation. You will get a lot of inconsistency and dullness over time. So, Nancy, last question for you before we wrap up. One piece of practical advice you would share with our listeners that we haven't talked about so far. I think having a really, really deep understanding of consumer motivations and drawing strength of your convictions is key to innovation. It's not this blind bluster. There's you got to feel grounded in some kind of truth that gives credence to your gut feeling. And so um, I would say that that is what my advice is, is start with a deep, deep insight of consumer motivations. And can I summarize that by saying motivation with a direction or innovation with a direction versus, ju versus just like, we're gonna innovate, do whatever the heck you want? Yeah, that, yeah. yeah okay. Super yeah. And the other thing I'll just say is pick your shots because there's a couple conditions that really help you, uh, you know, get get innovation across the finish line within a company, whether it's um, a, a desperate situation where necessity is the mother of invention, whether it is uh, you've got the strength behind you that you can afford to take some risks because everyone will come along with you. And then um, don't be afraid to have a broad foundation of experience where you can really draw from lateral thinking across different experiences and industries to say, oh, it worked here, maybe it'll work here. So those are some of the things that I've thought about that have helped me um, get you know, proposed innovations across the finish line. Well, thank you, Nancy. And thanks to everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for our other shows on Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube, which include what your agency wants to tell you but won't how your creatives really wish you would run that meeting, is the CMO position headed for extinction, and what private equity really thinks about marketing. Nancy, thanks for joining us. All you marketers, stay safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. This episode of CMO Confidential is produced and sponsored by Adcom, one of the premier integrated marketing and advertising agencies Adcom works with mid-market companies to create measurable returns. 
With 30 plus years experience, Adcom partners to lead innovative strategy, creative, media, and analytics for growth-oriented brands that want to differentiate themselves in a crowded field. Working in B2B, B2C, healthcare, financial services, transportation, building products, and consumer goods, Adcom leverages unique internal and external insights to create dynamic and lasting brands ready to maximize their market position. For more information, visit us at engageadcom.com. Great careers are forged out of great relationships. Your success, whatever your field, relies and thrives on the support and insights of others. I'm Andy Lapata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the Connected Leadership podcast aims to inspire, educate and entertain. Hi, my name is Sarah and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. 